Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I'll be reading out the New International Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they, were upstairs to the, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. These present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Hear the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bert. Thank you, Allison, music team, for leading us in worship this morning. We exalt his name together. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning acknowledging your goodness, your greatness, your holiness, and we submit ourselves to you to learn from you today. So, Lord God, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us insight, give us understanding, give us the discipline that we need to follow through and to be obedient to your word. Help us to be hearers and doers of your word. I thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the freedom that we have to come to you this day and offer our worship and our prayers together. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak through us through the gift that you sent to us through your Holy Spirit, through your living word. I ask that you'd guard my words, help me to accurately communicate what you would have us here today. Keep us focused on your truth. Keep us responding to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. I've asked Grace to stay up for just a moment as we start the message this morning and help us with a little illustration. She's going to play a song beginning with just one finger on the piano. Then she'll add in the other four of that hand, play with one hand, and then finish the song with both hands. Pay attention to the difference as she plays. Grace, one finger. Five fingers. All ten. That was amazing, Grace. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And it was amazing grace, and it was amazing grace. So you see, a song like that, the piano can be played with one finger or five, one hand. But when you put both hands, all ten fingers into it, it's beautiful. The same is true of the Christian life. You can live the Christian life on your own. You can do it on your own, go it on your own, but it's a whole lot harder. And it's not what God intended for us. 
He intended for us to do life, live the Christian life, function as His people together. And out of that, He makes something beautiful. And that's our focus this morning because that's what the early church learned. That's how it all started. You know, the early believers came together and they they realized that they needed one another. God launched His church not with individuals each doing their own thing, but with a group of people who came together to do God's thing. And so that's the focus of our passage this morning. It's the focus really of our of our series in the book of Acts. We started this series last week. We've entitled it To the Ends of the Earth, taken right from Acts 1-8. And uh, as you're turning there, I encourage you to do that. Take your Bible, your phone, electronic device, whatever you have with you today. Get to Acts chapter 1. We're going to pick up in the middle of, the, of that chapter today. I'll give you a quick summary from our introduction last week. Christ's followers were convinced by His post-resurrection appearances. They saw Him. They were encouraged by the words that He spoke to them. They were commissioned by Him to be His witnesses. And they watched Him ascend into heaven. And as they did, they were assured that He would come back again. And with that assurance, they became committed to His kingdom work to the ends of the earth. You're saying, Pastor Jeff, that's the whole sermon last week. Why couldn't you have spoken it that quickly last week, right? But as we move on in, we find, as Jason prayed a moment ago, they're now in a waiting mode. So Jesus has ascended. They've gone back to Jerusalem, and they're waiting, waiting for the gift of the Spirit that Jesus had promised. How would they spend their time waiting? What would they do? Well, they could have gone to their own homes. They could have each gone to their own place and waited on their own, but that's not what happens. They come together, praying together, problem-solving together, proclaiming together. And that's our outline for this morning. Chapter 1 and into chapter 2, beginning with this first point this morning, together in prayer. The verses you just heard Bert read a few moments ago, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. We saw the disciples went back to their room in the city. They're waiting for this gift. Who's there? Well, it's the 11 disciples. 11 left because Judas is already gone. The women, probably the ones that had gone to the tomb, that group that we talked about back on, at Easter. The mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus is there, and Jesus' brothers, which is fascinating because as far as we know, his brothers didn't follow him during his ministry and his life, but came to believe in him after his death and resurrection. And so they are there too. And this time, they're not hiding behind locked doors like they were after the crucifixion, right? They're not shaking in their sandals there. They... They have this confidence now, and they're together. Verse 14 says, joined together constantly in prayer. Love that. Constantly in prayer. This was the most important thing for them. Then this was the best thing, the most important thing they could do as well. This praying together as they're waiting is what united their hearts. It's what brought them together as one. And it's what prepared them for what was coming next. What do, uh, those of you who are sports fans will notice, what, what happens between every play in a football game? A <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> That's the only one with enough confidence to say. They huddle. Yeah, the football players get together and they huddle. And unless they're in a no-huddle offense, they're you know, trying to go fast. Otherwise, they huddle. Even the defense sometimes huddle. So think about this. These big, burly guys get together in a little circle. They put their heads together. They put their arms around each other sometimes, and they talk. What are they doing in that, in that huddle? The quarterback is telling them what the play is so that they all know the play, so that they're all on the same page, so that they're all headed to the same goal, doing the right things. They need that huddle to get them together. Now, you know, I don't know if you hear this much anymore, but it used to be in a negative sense people would talk about Christians, about church, and call it a holy huddle. It was not said in a favorable sense. But actually, it's a pretty good metaphor for what it means to come together in prayer, like we're seeing the early church here. It's a holy huddle, a huddle in a good sense, in that when we come together to pray together, to be together, we are being reminded of the play, of the goal. We're getting on the same page. We're being reminded of our priorities It happens when we come together like we're doing this morning. So when we come and we sing like we've just been singing, we bring our voices together, that brings a unity, that brings a, a focus to who we are and why we're here. When you get together in small groups, as many of you are, a small group that meets together out in the community in somebody's home and you're getting together to study the Word, and you're getting together to pray for each other, that unites you, that connects you in ways that nothing else can. That's why it's so important to us. That's why it's one of our vision initiatives this year is to ask every regular attender and member of Trinity to be involved in at least one of these kind of groups because we need that togetherness. We're made for that, and we see the early church committed to that. Even when we're together one-on-one. -on -one. If you're talking to somebody on the phone or FaceTime or Zoom, and just one or two other people perhaps, that connection that happens brings us together, prepares us, enables us, encourages us in our Christian life and walk in a way that nothing else can. The first believers were together, and they were together in prayer. But there was also a problem. There was something they had to deal with. There was a defection, this whole issue, what I would call the Judas problem. It's right there in their face, and they have to deal with it. And so that comes right here in the first chapter of Acts. <clears throat> we see them now together in problem-solving too. They come together for prayer, but there's a problem that to be solved. And as we go on in chapter 1, verse 15 on, this small band of 120 believers comes together, and there's this elephant in the room that they have to deal with. And, you know, sometimes when we begin praying together, it surfaces. It brings out those problems that need to be dealt with, decisions that need to happen. And that's okay. That's good. That's part of what should happen within the body as we pray together. Judas, as you know, was one of the 12 apostles. It followed Jesus all the way through, but betrayed Jesus in the end. Brought the Jewish authorities to him to be arrested. And as you know from the gospel account, he was paid 30 pieces of silver for that betrayal, which he later then regretted once he saw what happened to Jesus. He goes back. He throws the money on the temple floor. He doesn't want it. But he's so broken over this that he goes out and he hangs himself. Terrible end. And Peter describes it in this passage in vivid terms. But the problem is, and the, the issue is, that they need to do something. They need a replacement here. 
They need a 12th disciple. Remember Jesus' words. So Matthew 19, 28, we'll put on the screen. He said that these 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, looking to the future, right, the future kingdom. <clears throat> well, Judas certainly isn't going to count as one of those 12 apostles, right? So they need somebody to take his place. How would they choose? Well, I love the way they do this. Peter takes the lead here. He keys off Jesus' emphasis of being witnesses. Remember, that was our discussion over and over last week. That Jesus says before he leaves, you're going to be my witnesses. So they needed a witness. Look what, the, what happens in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 1. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time of that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So here, the criteria, the qualifications, this person that's going to be the 12th apostle had to be a follower of Jesus all the way through. So saw the miracles and heard his teaching, knew Jesus, was part of this. And somebody that saw Jesus after his resurrection, who witnessed the living Christ when he came back from the dead. Those were the qualifications. Because this person needed to be a witness for Jesus. Well, two candidates surfaced, a guy named Justice, a guy named Matthias. So now what? What are they going to do? They've got two qualified candidates. How are they going to choose? Well, no surprise, they pray. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. See, even in their prayer, they're a little bit of a jab. They understand Judas is out in the decisions that he made. But it's a great prayer because it acknowledges that only God knows the heart and that these believers needed his guidance to solve this problem and to make this decision. They had to turn to God. So what do they do? Verse 26 tells us they cast lots. The lot falls to Matthias, making him the 12th apostle. They're all in agreement. Now, casting lots, what was that? Similar to in our day of drawing straws or rolling the dice or something like that. And to us, that seems like, well, that's an awfully casual way to make this important decision. But, of course, remember, this was part of Jewish tradition. The casting of the lots was a way that God had given them to discern His will. And so these early believers are still coming out of that Jewish tradition, and so they go through with this. But the important thing is that they had prayed together, and because they prayed together, there was agreement about the decision. They said, we're going to ask God, and when He gives us the answer, we're all in agreement that that's going to be the answer. So when they get the answer on the lots, no one gets upset. Justice isn't saying, hey, wait, we need to cast those lots again. Give me another try. Best out of three. No. And Matthias doesn't resist the call. He recognizes this is from God. It's God's will. So what is the takeaway from us in terms of problem solving and decision making? Well, the point is not that we should resort to casting of lots. And from now on, that's how we choose our elders and deacons here. No, that's not the principle here. The principle is that they prayed first, and because they prayed that the way God showed them was in agreement with them, and they followed through together, united, because they had prayed for God's will. So here's the takeaway, is that there are going to be those times when we come up against it, 
in our church life, in our personal lives, in our family lives, when we won't know what to do, when we're stuck, we're at a problem, we're not sure the solution, the decision, we don't know which way to go. What should we do? We stop and pray. Hopefully, you're kind of used to hearing that phrase here at Trinity. It's one of our mottos. We stop and pray. And in this case, it means don't just move forward and make a decision and go and try to solve the problem yourself until you've prayed it through. This is key to our lives personally, family-wise, as well as as a church. Jesus told His disciples, He said, if two of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you. That's Matthew 18, 19. He says, if you come together and you're in agreement in prayer, that's when God moves. That's when you'll see His will. Decisions. We need to ask God's for God's will. Let me try to show it to you another way here. Beth's going to come and help me with this. Let's say we're moving some furniture. Let's pretend we're at our house. And this actually happens sometimes. It's like, the person, I think the table should go over there, dear. What do you think? I think it would look best right there. No, it's better there. Yeah, see, you think the pastor and his wife agree about everything. We do not, do not agree about everything. So, no, I think it should go over there, over there, over there, over there. So, now, to solve this problem, this decision, how about, since Charles is the one who kind of is in charge of this room, why don't we ask him? Are we agreed that whatever Charles says, that's what we'll do in terms of where to move the table? Yes. Okay. Charles, what should we do with this communion table? <laughs> leave it right here. Agreed. Okay. Problem solved. In, in a very simple, simplified kind of sense, if we would stop and we say, wait, let's ask God. We need to ask God's opinion, God's will, God for this decision, for this problem. We don't just blow through it. We don't just charge through it. We don't just move in our own will, we stop and ask for God's will. It's such a simple thing, but it's something we so often forget. And right here at the beginning of the church, we see the church doing this together, praying for His will. And when God gives them His will, they move forward in agreement. And so we do this, and, and when we choose leaders here at Trinity, that's why we emphasize praying through. We want God's will. We pray for God's will as we're choosing elders, deacons, staff here at Trinity. And we need to do the same in our, in our personal lives. So maybe the prayer would sound something like this, Lord, you know our hearts, you know our needs, you know the situation that we're in, you understand the problem in ways that we don't understand it, and so we are agreed in prayer that we will follow your will. So that's a great prayer. Stop and pray that prayer. How much grief and pain would that save us in our lives if we would just do that? If you happen to be using Paul David Tripp's devotional book, New Morning Mercies, you probably heard me mention this before. I'm going through it for the second or third time, I think. And he's, if you follow this, you know this past week he's been walking through the Lord's Prayer, taking a phrase each day. And two days ago, on May 7th, his devotional was on the phrase, Thy will be done, out of the Lord's Prayer. Notice what he says. Prayer is never about asking God to submit his awesome power to your will and plan. It's not, God, you need to do this, God, you need to do that. Prayer is an act of personal submission to the always right will of God. That's why prayer is so important. It's not to tell God what he missed. 
It's to get our hearts in submission to His will. And I would extend that to say corporate prayer is about submitting together to the always right will and plan of God. We can do that together as a church, as couples, as families, being together and problem-solving as well. So, ten days after His ascension comes the day of Pentecost. It had been 50 days. That's what Pentecost means, 50. 50 days since the Passover, since Christ's crucifixion. Now, we think of Pentecost as a church holiday, a day on the church calendar, but it, first of all, it was a, on the Jewish calendar. It was a Jewish holiday. They had this festival of weeks that went through for seven weeks, and at the end of seven weeks, on the 50th day was the day of Pentecost when the Jews would celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and when they would renew their commitment to the Mosaic Covenant. And so God chooses this day. I love this. He chooses that day to give His Spirit and to confirm His new covenant with His people. Pentecost. And so Pentecost takes on new meaning for us as the church. And Pentecost comes, and where do we find the Christ followers? Ah, guess what? They're together again. See the theme? Chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. It doesn't say, but my guess is they were praying again. It was time for the church to be born, these witnesses to begin speaking. Okay, now is what Jesus promised. This is what they've been waiting for. So our third point this morning, they were together and now in proclamation. Now they're going to begin to speak. So we read about this, about the sending of God's Spirit. Now, please understand God could have sent His Spirit totally unseen and unheard, right? He could have just sent the Spirit. He would have indwelt those believers, and they would have moved on into their ministry. But God chose to do this with some very visible and audible signs so that this would be memorable, that would be significant, it would be meaningful. And so we need to pay attention to how this happens. So the Spirit comes first with the sound of wind. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, notice it's easy for us to miss this because we hear wind. We immediately think of the feel of wind. And so you get this picture of the wind blowing through the house and the, the papers are blowing everywhere and everybody's hit, hair is blowing. It doesn't say there was a feel of wind. There was a sound of wind. Have any of you ever been in a hurricane or a tornado? Let me see your hand for just a minute. If you've, okay, a few of you have experienced that. If you have, you know that it's a violent, incredibly loud sound, especially if you're in the midst of that. In fact, people describe tornadoes as the sound of a, what is it? A freight train, right? A freight, that, so maybe this was the sound, as we would say it, describe it as a freight train coming right through this room where they stayed. So they didn't, nobody missed it. Nobody missed that sound. Even if they only had half hearing like I have, they heard this sound. So those outside probably heard it too because the text says it came from heaven and then entered the room. And so this is probably the way God used to draw people to this house to begin to hear when they began to speak. So there's already this commotion, already this sound. Everybody says, what was that sound? Going to see. And why the sound of wind? Well, maybe you know this already. The Greek word for wind is pneuma, and pneuma is also the Greek word for breath, and it's the word for spirit. In fact, in the Hebrew, the Old Testament, it's the same word for wind and for spirit. 
So there was no mistaking this. For these people, as believers gathered together, they were waiting for the Spirit. When they heard wind, they knew this is the Spirit. God made it very evident, very clear. And violent wind, it says in the text, so maybe that was to show them this is coming with power because that's what Jesus had promised. The coming of the Spirit would be in power. So what else happened? Second, the Spirit came in with, with looking like something, looked like tongues of fire. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. What's the biblical significance of fire? Let me just give you a few examples here. God made a covenant with Abraham, and when he did, he appeared as a blazing torch. That's Genesis 15. When God met Moses, he appeared as a burning bush. That's Exodus 3. When God led the Israelites at night, he appeared as a pillar of fire. That's Exodus 20, uh, 13. When he gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he was a cloud of fire up on the top of the mountain, right? Exodus 24. When he came into the tabernacle, he appeared as a cloud of fire. Exodus 40. And finally, when the Israelites build Solomon's temple, how does God come to dwell in that temple? He comes as fire from heaven, 2 Chronicles 7. See, when God wanted to show his people that he was present, he came with fire. That's how they saw him. That's how he made his presence visible. So fire. But notice in this case, the fire didn't just land on a torch or on a bush or on a mountain. This fire comes and it separates out. And they know God's in the room, but now it begins to separate and it, and it lands on each of them. And we don't know exactly what that looked like, but this was because this was something new. This was something significant. This had not happened in the Old Testament. When the presence of God came, it came near, but because it came as fire, people basically stayed away from it. They saw it, oh, that's God over there, but we're going to stay our distance over here. Now God comes as fire and separates out and lands on them. See the difference? Now God's presence is in them. God's presence is with them. God's presence is personalized because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his death and resurrection, because of his promise of the Spirit, he comes personally and indwells these believers, and he's there to stay. The fire, the presence of God, no longer dwelling in a tabernacle or a temple made with hands. What does the New Testament say? The temple of God is now within you. We are the temple because God dwells in us in the person of His Spirit. Let's give you a few illustrations of this. This past winter, we got our own little fire pit in, the, in our backyard. There's a picture of our little fire pit. I'm so happy because I, I just love fire. I love making a fire and kind of stoking the fire. And if it's out there somewhere else at somebody else's house or a bonfire somewhere else, you know, you can watch it and you can look at it, but when it's your own fire, I can, now it's in my backyard, I can poke on it, I can toast marshmallows or hot dogs over it. It's my fire. There's much more personalized. That's the Holy Spirit. He comes personalizing the presence of God in your own backyard, so to speak. Or think about it another way, you know, if you have a fireplace in your house, it's great. You have the warmth of that fire, the beauty of that fire, and you can go to it and look at it and be warmed by it. 
But when you leave, you leave the, the heat. You leave the presence of that fire. But if, as most of you probably have, it is um, uh, central heat and air, then that heat gets pumped out to every room in the house. It's spread out. And that's the picture we have here. Now the presence of God is spread out to each individual, to each heart, each life. The fire of God's presence abides in you. And he was with on, within all of God's people. Notice that in the passage. He's all of them present. It wasn't just a select few that got the flame. All of God's people. So what does this mean for us? It means that you're never alone. It means that God's presence is always with you. It means that the warmth of His love is always available to you. You're never left out in the cold because His presence abides in you now. There's one more way that the Spirit announced His arrival. There's the sound of wind. There's the sight of fire. But now comes the proclamation of the message. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now it's the Spirit at work. The Spirit enables them. He empowers them. And the first thing that happens is they're given the supernatural ability to speak in languages that they had never learned. Now, you, you understand there's been a, some debate in, in mid, over many years about whether this is ecstatic tongues, is this an unintelligible kind of speech, or were these actual languages? I think the two things that argue for them being actual languages, one is the, the Greek word used for this is the word typically used for languages, real spoken languages. But maybe even more powerful here is the context because Luke goes on to tell us that there were Jews from all parts of the world who were gathered in Jerusalem for this festival. They'd heard this sound. They come and they gather around. And now as the believers begin to speak in all these different languages, these different tongues, they hear these Galileans speaking and they understand what they're saying. They hear their foreign native languages that they don't expect to hear in Jerusalem and certainly don't expect to hear from these Galileans. So maybe it sounded something like this. We'll give you a little display. So would my speakers just stand for a moment? Maybe it sounded like this. Do you know what you just heard? John 3.16 in five different languages. Now, if you knew German or French or Spanish or Greek or what was the other language? Russian. If you knew any of those languages, you would have probably picked up on that and said, wait, I, wait I, hear, I hear that language, I know. That's what happened on Pentecost. Suddenly, these people from all different parts of the world heard all these people this talking, this commotion. It's like, wait, that person's speaking my language. By God's Spirit, He gave them the supernatural ability to speak these languages so that people from all over the world in Jerusalem on that day could hear the gospel. Verse 11 says, the people respond. They say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So what is the first thing the Spirit does? He helps them be witnesses. The crowd begins to ask, 
What does this mean? And that question leads them, prepares them. Now they're ready to hear the gospel. Now they're ready to hear Peter's sermon, which we'll come to next week. What did Peter say? All these people from all over the world in Jerusalem, ready to hear the gospel. Imagine how this must have boosted the confidence of those first believers, right? That's what I think of here. And the Spirit enabled them to witness with power. He gave them this ability to speak these languages in that very moment for that very purpose. And if they wondered how they could possibly be God's witnesses to the ends of the earth, as Jesus had said, wait, how are we going to talk to people from Libya or from Rome or or from Asia? How are we going to do this? Now they knew. Right off the bat, they knew that God was going to enable them to speak and that He was going to make sure His Word, His gospel, this good news, got out to the whole world. Now, you may never be given the supernatural ability to speak a different language. Even those of us who were doing that, most of us had to use cheat sheets to do it, you know, reading off those languages. So you may never have that ability in that moment, but although there are stories of that happening, even in our day today, God can certainly choose to do what He chooses to do. But one thing this for sure does mean, hear this, if you will depend on the power of God's Spirit in you, and if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you have His Spirit, and if you accept your responsibility as a witness for Christ, then you can know that God will enable your tongue to speak as He wants you to speak. You can speak for Him. If you're willing to declare the wonders of salvation to others, He will give you that ability in the moment. I hope all this encourages you as much as it does me. What we see this morning is from the very beginning of God's church. His intent was for His people to come together in prayer, to come together to solve the problems of the church, which there would always be, and to come together to be able to proclaim the Word of God, in the power of the Spirit. Because that's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. I think too often we forget, we ignore the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We just fail to remember this precious gift of God to us. This extraordinary power of God, the presence of God, He's placed in us in the person of the Spirit. And we cannot forget that. We sang this morning about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's together as the Trinity that they work in us and through us. And maybe I'm most aware of this and encouraged by this passage because I experienced it this very week. Some of you know my mom was taken to the hospital on Wednesday night, so I went to the hospital, met the ambulance there, and went into the emergency room with her, stayed all night with her, as they were treating her and trying to assess her situation. And if you've been in those moments, you know you feel totally lost, totally helpless. So I began texting. It was already late, so didn't do as many people as I did the next morning. But texting people, say, please pray. Our family, please pray. And the next morning, we got it out. Many of you here at Trinity saw that prayer request, and you prayed for us. So for me, that thought of being together in prayer was very personal and very needed just a few days ago. We came across that first day. We had to make some decisions about my mom's care, about what to do next. We're 
texting, calling other people, some of you in the church here, to get advice. We needed to come, we need the church coming together around us, problem solving, decision making. We needed that help. And God provided it through the church. And this past week, maybe more than ever, I understood the need for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to encourage me to be with my mom, to help in that time of need. The power and presence of God in the person of the Spirit. So in all these ways, we need this on a regular basis. I needed it, experienced it, and thankful for it this week because it happened to me. Thankfully, my mom recovered, was released from the hospital on Friday. She's back home at her assisted living community in, in Canton. She's home for Mother's Day today, which we're very thankful for that, and she's doing great. She's recovering well. I'm thankful for the prayers of God's people and the power of God's Spirit. Don't neglect, don't forget the precious gift that Jesus gave. We're going to close this morning by singing the song that says, He's the promise maker and He's the promise keeper. Acts 2 shows us that He kept His promise to send His Spirit and He continues to fulfill that promise in us today. The Holy Spirit is the power and the presence of God in you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You so much for that promise made and that promise kept. Thank you for sending us your spirit, that work in us, teaching us, counseling us, guiding us, helping us, motivating us, enabling us to serve you, to live for you, to speak for you. Lord God, thank you so much that you showed us from the very birth of the church how you did that, how your spirit enabled those first believers to be witnesses for you in the moment and in ways they could never have imagined, in languages they did not even know. Lord, that's the power of your Spirit at work in us. So, Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here that has never made that commitment to you to, to come under your authority and to receive that gift of salvation, I pray that they would take that step and receive your Spirit today. And for those of us that know you and have received your spirit, Lord, may we never squelch or ignore the work of your spirit in our lives. Make us aware. Help us to be committed. May we not move, do anything, say anything without you, without stopping and asking for your will, for your presence, for your power to do that work in us and through us. Because that's what we need most. And this we pray in thanksgiving to our Savior Jesus. Amen.